Hello, salam, and welcome to CRCP. This is a podcast about all things war and politics. I'm Esra, and I'm with my co-host Freya. Hello, salam, everyone. Um, so before we get into it, we just want to briefly introduce ourselves. Um, I'm British Turkish. I did my undergraduate studies in political science and international relations, and I did my master's in conflict studies. And Freya? So I'm Freya and I'm British Pakistani and I studied international relations for my undergraduate degree and international conflict studies for my master's where I met Isra. Mm-hmm. So on this episode we're going to be talking about Libya and there are a few reasons why we chose this. Um, mainly because there are multiple actors involved, it has geopolitical importance and also theoretical and normative significance. Um, so Freya's is going to give us a brief history and background on Libya. Okay, so to contextualise this conflict, it's important to begin with looking at one of Libya's most prominent figures, and that is Gaddafi. Now, Gaddafi started off as a pan-Arabist and anti-revolutionary, taking inspiration from Egyptian President Nasser, and came into power in 1969 in a bloodless coup, which toppled King Idris at the age of 27. Um, Now, turning to his rule... Gaddafi was a highly controversial leader. He was accused of supporting armed groups, including FARC in Colombia and the IRA in Northern Ireland. And he had nuclear ambitions uh, for Libya, which kind of alarmed the international community. Importantly, he was known for his involvement in the bombing of a flight in Scotland or the Lockerbie bombing of 1988. So this earned Libya the status of a pariah state and um, it was subjected to UN sanctions for quite some time. So that's on the foreign side of things. Now returning to the domestic side, as I mentioned earlier, Gaddafi emerged as this revolutionary and anti-imperialist championing the rights of Libyans, but his 42-year rule suggested otherwise. As a dictator, he was a kleptocrat, hoarding the country's wealth and distributed it among his inner circle. Healthcare was poor, education was underfunded, there was no proper infrastructure, which meant that Libya was largely under, underdeveloped. And this is a pattern that we see among many post-colonial states, where you have this anti-imperialist who emerges from the ashes of post-colonialism and they're embraced by locals for their struggle against colonialism. And then as their career progresses, they become tyrants. Another example being Robert Mugabe in Zimbabwe. So long story short, Gaddafi ruled with an iron fist stifling economic development and suppressing political rights and this eventually culminated in the February revolution in 2011 during the Arab Spring. Here we saw Libyans take to the street to demand for an end to corruption and unemployment and ultimately Gaddafi's overthrow. The political instability uh, later invited uh, NATO to intervene in March 2011 um, and the conflict or Well, I would say the first phase of the conflict ended with the killing of Gaddafi on 20th October 2011. So the point of this brief introduction is therefore to show that violence didn't emerge out of the blue. Libya was no stranger to conflict. Gaddafi left behind a legacy of political instability that intensified following his killing in 2011. So Esra, would you like to elaborate more on the intervention and its significance? Yeah, I mean, the intervention is interesting because it was the first time and so far the only time, um, the response to the protect norm was invoked. Um, so response to the protect, or RTQ, um, is basically an evolution of humanitarian intervention. And it is the idea that the international society, usually understood as the UN, 
um, has a responsibility to protect a population when a state is failing to do so. So the architect of RTP is a commission called International Commission on Intervention and State Sovereignty. It was set up by the Canadian government in 2000. Um, it's interesting because although the members of the commission are from different countries, they are all from um, similar ideological backgrounds, mm-hmm. um, usually left-leaning, um, but those who support interventionist policy. Um, so for example, different members supported more intervention in Afghanistan and uh, the intervention in Iraq. Um, so RGP is a political commitment to prevent genocide, war crimes, ethnic cleansing and crimes against humanity. Um, through the works of this commission, the norm was unanimously adopted during the UN War Summit in 2005. So that means all UN members agreed to this political commitment in theory. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so the difference between humanitarian intervention and RTP isn't a big difference, to be honest. Humanitarian intervention is defined as sort of actions undertaken by a state or a coalition to stop atrocities, human rights violations in another state's territory. Um, so the problem with humanitarian intervention is that it has its roots in colonialism. And when you look at academic literature, you see that earliest examples of humanitarian intervention are European states' interference on behalf of the Christian subjects of the Ottoman Empire. Um, we all know how that ended. So that kind of gives us an idea about what humanitarian intervention is and where it came from. Um, and the idea behind these interventions was, and still is to an extent, um, that one style of civilization is better and should be spread in order to civilize natives and savages. Yeah. Um, so when I first read about this in uni, the first thing that came to my mind was the sort of American motto of spreading democracy and freedom in the Middle East. Mm. Um, it just it sounds too familiar to ignore. Um, so humanitarian intervention is mainly military, whereas RGP um, includes preventive diplomacy, um, such as economic sanctions. They're not that different in essence, but the claim with RGP is that the victims are put first. And the yeah. difference, if we're really talking about sort of um, so historically or chronologically, um, so humanitarian intervention is more post-Cold War. Because during Cold War, no one really justified intervening any, any, anywhere. It was sort of fighting communism or defending communism. Um, it was more of a post-Cold War thing where America and other Western countries started justifying their interventions on a humanitarian basis. And with RGP, it's more 2000s onward. And it, it's just an intensified version of humanitarian intervention. Um, mm. So both concepts are interesting um, because they kind of force us to question... Um, norms and principles such as sovereignty, non-intervention and protection of human rights and human dignity. Yeah. So within the current international system, which is based on the Westphalia Treaty, um, it's centred around non-intervention and the importance of state sovereignty. But So the Westphalia Treaty was in the 17th century, 1648 to be exact. And you see that European countries agree to non-intervention, right? Non-interference as a principle of international legal system. But then you see them become colonial powers. So it's very clearly not a principle rooted in equality. So essentially, it's like a tool uh, to extend their neocolonialism. Literally, yeah, to an extent. Because it's just, yeah. it's, it's a protection of their own sovereignty. 
and it's not taking into consideration other states' um, right to non-interference. Mm-hmm. Um, so RTP claims to bring a different understanding and definition to state sovereignty in that it views state sovereignty as a responsibility rather than as a shield of protection. But again, does this actually limit sovereignty or does it limit sovereignty for certain states and enhance it for others? So in terms of Libya and Libyan intervention, you know, what gives NATO and NATO members the right to intervene in Libya while mm-hmm. Libya does not have the right to refuse the intervention? Yeah. And obviously in practical terms, the answer is power. Um, so when you look at the UN Security Council voting on Libya, um, it's not unanimous, um, but Russia and China abstained from voting, right? Well, abstained their votes. So that means there were no vetoes, because those are the only two countries that actually veto anything. Um, and mm-hmm. the Libyan intervention is interesting because normally an intervention takes years, right? Not just pr- in practical terms, but also, you know, the propaganda, the convincing of the UN, or even if it's, you know, the country, usually America, decides and not to... And the whole voting it. system as well. Literally, yeah, yeah. yeah. Even if they decide not to seek UN approval, it still takes a few years to build mm-hmm. up um, you know, media coverage, they have to find an enemy, <laughs> they have to blame someone. Yeah. It takes a few years to intervene in a country. Yeah, and where... also gathering domestic support for it as well. Yeah, literally. Yeah. That's what I mean by propaganda and like, media coverage. That's, yeah. you, they have to sort of um, go on uh, yeah, domestic support. In Libya, it took exactly one month mm-hmm. um, for the UN to approve a NATO intervention. That's pretty remarkable. Um, yeah. And from the beginning, the NATO intervention was defined as a mission to protect civilians um, and they continue to make that claim throughout the intervention in fact they still make that claim but there are um, reports that NATO and US armed rebel groups and they supported and aided regime change in Libya mm-hmm. um, which in this case isn't a bad thing but it doesn't bode well for future possible interventions because following this, yeah. you know, China and Russia vetoed similar resolutions in other countries, for example, in Syria. Mm-hmm. Okay, um... so that's sort of the theoretical side of the intervention, but there is, you know, geopolitical significance of the current conflict, and I think Freya can give us a more insight into that. Yeah, so um, under post-Gaddafi's Libya, the country entered a period of civil strife where you had opposing factions, tribes and militias who previously fought together to overthrow Gaddafi, now fighting each other in what was a power vacuum left by the NATO intervention. Crime and violence increased and a report by the International Crisis Group estimated there were between 100 and 300 armed militia groups that fought against Gaddafi's forces and by 2014 that number had skyrocketed to approximately 1,600. And just to touch on again on the political underdevelopment of the country, the Libyan case is different to other Arab countries because Libya never had any political institutions or political parties or even a constitution under Gaddafi. Even countries like Tunisia and Egypt still had elections and had a vibrant civil society. 
there was no proper infrastructure in Libya, which made it a perfect breeding ground for violence and lawlessness. So another issue in Persgadafi, Libya, was the huge amount of easily accessible weapons. The bombing of sites, which had a large stockpile of weapons by NATO forces, allowed for weapons to flood Libya's streets and it fell into the hands of militias. However, in the aftermath of the NATO intervention, a National Transitional Council was created and prepared for elections, which failed to deliver a clear and decisive victory for any contender because of the violence and lawlessness. Um, But then a turning point in the conflict came about when a parliamentary election was held in 2014 and resulted in the split of two administrations. Now, this began the power struggle, which has engulfed the present day situation in Libya. The two rival administrations are the Government of National Accord, or the GNA, which was brought to power in 2016 by a UN-led political agreement led by Prime Minister Fayez al-Sarraj and remains in power in the country's capital, Tripoli. The government is UN-backed and controls pockets of territory in Libya's northwest. Um, And then its political adversary, the House of Representatives, Uh, relocated to eastern Libya and are still fighting with the GNA with the backing of militias, namely the Libyan National Army under General Khalifa Haftar and his forces control much of the country. Now, turning to another prominent figure in the conflict, who is Haftar? Um, Khalifa Haftar used to be an ally of Gaddafi, but fell out with him and lived in exile for 20 years in America. He returned to Libya during the revolution and consolidated power in 2014 in eastern Libya with the support of Egypt and the UAE. Opinion on him is split, uh, where his supporters believe him to be a bulwark against extremist forces, including Islamic State, which has a presence in the country. Uh, His military victories in terms of how much territory he has brought under his control has won him a lot of support. Some people see him as a provider of security and livelihood, which is a common narrative explaining why people living in absolute poverty as a result of war and conflict would turn towards counter-revolutionary and extremist forces. However, the majority find him to be another authoritarian dictator. Neither side has been democratically elected. One was installed by the UN, whilst the other forcibly took control of much of the country, Both are involved in forced disappearances, unlawful detentions, killings, kidnappings, torture and extortion. And what this really shows is a struggle for power, struggle for resources, ultimately. So where are we now? Uh, Currently, both sides are still engaged in a battle to control the capital. And in 2014, Haftar announced on TV that the government in Tripoli had been dissolved and began his war against militia groups in the east, claiming to fight terrorism and to stabilise Libya against Islamic State and Al-Qaeda affiliate militias. More increasingly, though, the Libyan conflict has opened up to an international dimension where it has become the site of proxy war with a number of foreign powers vying for control to defend their ideological and economic interests. So who are these different actors? So the GNA is backed by the UN and Western powers, including the US, even though the US have played a peripheral role because of Trump's non-intervention stance. But that is likely to change under what looks like, what seems like a Biden presidency. So Italy, having been Libya's former coloniser, wants to see stability in Libya because that is tied to their national security interests. Libya is a primary gateway for many economic migrants, as well as migrants fleeing war and persecution, and is their first destination 
What is also of concern for the Italians is the large supply of weapons and the presence of extremist groups, which again threaten their um, national security and the national security of uh, many Western countries. And then, of course, we can't forget the oil factor as well. Um, Libya is home to large reserves of crude oil, and it's no secret that these Western powers want to exploit that. And then you have Qatar and Turkey also supporting the GNA. Um, Turkey's interesting because it's a big contender in this conflict, and many analysts argue that Turkey finds supporting the GNA as a way to expand its influence in the east of the Mediterranean, which has gas reserves, and they want to secure their drilling rights as well. Um, they've signed a maritime boundary agreement with uh, the UN-backed government in Libya. And Turkey has also provided ground support in the form of troops, uh, Syrian pro-Turkish troops, um, and have been using their drone power to support al-Siraj. So on the other hand, you have France, which is opposing Italy and supporting Haftar to defeat extremism, which again is tied to their national security. They've been actively launching airstrikes to support the Haftar's regime. And then... Um, sorry, I, I find it really interesting how extremism in Libya is tied to France's national security. Because I do feel that France and Italy being on opposing sides is more about Italy's actual national security issues, in this case, the Mm -hmm. migrant crisis. And France's desire to be more active in the Mediterranean and also its hatred of political Islam or Islam in general. And you see their relation with Turkey change in a sense too, and that, not to be Turkey-centric, but, you know, France and Turkey have their issues, (laughs) to say the least. Um, And Turkey and Italy are kind of okay. They're not, Mm -hmm. they really aren't opposed to each other Ways. Yeah, France France is interesting because uh they have like a number of motivations to get involved in this conflict. Mm, so yeah. so um, I mean, it's it's love for North Africa is well known. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 Um and then similar to France, you have the UAE and Saudi Arabia who have provided Haftar with air support and financial support, and Egypt has mobilized their troops to support Haftar. And it's interesting how Egypt's involved in this conflict as well because they share a porous border with Libya, so their national security is also at stake. So Saudi Arabia, Egypt and the UAE see Haftar as an ally against the spread of political Islam or the Muslim Brotherhood ideology, uh, which is why they don't support the GNA because they see the GNA as having support from Muslim Brotherhood affiliates like Turkey and Qatar. Uh, Finally, we have Russia, who supports Haftar and has taken advantage of the lack of US intervention in the conflict to expand its influence in the region. Uh, They are known to have sent their own mercenaries in Libya as early as 2017, despite their denial. It demonstrates Russia's attempt to expand in the Middle East and Africa, with some even arguing that their role in this conflict is to undermine NATO's efforts. So where are we heading with this multi-layer natured conflict? While the UN and the Western allies of the GNA have been paralysed to take any meaningful action because of these unlikely alliances and the renewal of violence despite negotiating ceasefires. So you have these different competing interests which have blocked any attempts of reconciliation. So, for example, in April 2019, days before the UN peace conference on Libya, Haftar launched an assault on Tripoli with the support of Saudi Arabia, the UAE and Egypt, 
who have provided mercenaries as well. France has blocked EU attempts to pressurise Haftar to end violence in Tripoli. And then you have Brussels, who wants to curb migration and have cooperated with Libyan coast guards, um, which they have been criticised for because of the latter's human rights abuses. Uh, Associated Press found that vast sums of EU money had been channelled to militants and Coast Guard officers who have exploited and abused migrants. And figures uh, of January 2020 show more than 200,000 Libyans being internally displaced and 1.3 million needing humanitarian aid, according to the UN. So other examples of talks being stalled include that the Berlin process in January 2020, where a ceasefire was brokered and a UN arms embargo was negotiated. And one of the key takeaways from that conference was the German foreign minister, Heiko Maas, uh, stating that he did not want Libya to become a second Syria, which is interesting because... It it sounds a lot like they want to intervene in Libya (laughs) because they can't in Syria, but yeah. Basically what I was going to say. Um, (laughs) Exactly. So the reality is, is that Libya is lawless, underdeveloped and a weak state and there's no foreign investment. It's a complete war zone. But I think that this case just goes to show that the West always pursue these short term goals. They go into a country, they bomb what they see as the imminent threat at that time, but fail to see beyond their short sighted goals and the long term consequences. And we see this um, happened in Iraq, Afghanistan and now Libya. Yeah, and at this point, it really feels like the short-term goals are more of a foreign policy um, rather than mistakes, because Libya was the third US intervention in a decade. As you mentioned, they intervened in Iraq and Afghanistan and did the same things there too. Um, Obama called Libya his worst mistake, because he said that they failed to be more aggressively present with rebuilding Libya. (laughs) Basically (laughs) saying we failed at colonialism. Um, basically he, he blamed tribalism in libya and he also blamed yeah. nato allies meaning the europeans for not coming through and helping properly with the intervention yeah i remember reading something that he pinned the blame down on cameron as well that really yeah. sticks out to me <laughs> yeah i mean it's really interesting because he's basically saying you know we didn't intervene enough yeah um, it's just it's weird but it's not weird but it's very we didn't but intervene yeah. well enough yeah basically i mean it's it, it, it is partially because obama was elected in a post-iraq invasion mm-hmm. and one point was you know that he the, the, the iraq mistake would not re- be repeated and you know the mistake was called winning the war but losing the peace um so there was this really interesting article that was kind of analyzing the american style of war and it stated basically that for Americans, there are good wars and there are bad wars. You know, good ones are done to overthrow tyrants, and it's modelled on World War II. Um, and the bad ones involve nation-building missions to stabilise a foreign country. Now, it's really interesting because when you look at how you know, America is founded, it's a, it's a, it was a former colony. So you see them differentiate between colonialism and what they do, right? So yeah. colonialism kind of involves rebuilding or, you know, quote-unquote, building a state. Um, making sure you're there, you're present for the day-to-day um, you know, bureaucracy, state-making, whatever, whereas the American cells, like you mentioned, is just bombing the imminent threat and then leaving. Yeah. And not caring about what happens after. Now, they're not good or bad, they're both equally bad, in my opinion. Um, but it's interesting because, like, the American way of war kind of fixates on the bad guys, 
they make an enemy out of whoever's in charge, like Saddam, like Hitler, um, and it kind of doesn't care about the post-war, post-war um, phase of things. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it, I think in a way it makes sort of Americans, especially to garner um, you know, domestic unpopular support, it kind of makes them feel like, you know, if you have an evil guy that you can get rid of, then that simple, noble crusade that can be won. Um, whereas if you talk about, you know, rebuilding a country, then that's a bit of a different matter. You know, it takes, in their minds, I think it takes them more money. It's it's a bit more, it feels more colonial, whereas what America is doing actually not that different. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you look at US-Libya policy statements, um, it they openly talk about Libya as a oil-rich country and talk about how the National Oil Corporation must be allowed to fulfill its mandate. Um, you know, they mention kind of people dying and migration and, you know, asylum seekers and this and that. Just and here talk, and there. Yeah, you know, just here but the main thing is the oil. Um, yeah. And they talk about sort of the intervention in Libya by other countries as um, toxic interference. So it's almost like, you know, if we're not interfering, interfering, no one should be able to interfere either. Yeah, our interference um, is right and theirs yeah, is wrong. Basically, yeah. Um, and they sort of, some US um, post papers talk about how much aid um, they have provided in Libya. And the numbers are about roughly about $600 million in assistance. Um, they don't state what they've, you know, where, where the money actually goes. They just say assistance. Um I just want to mention that they spent $1 billion on the intervention itself. Um, and that's mm. one of the cheapest um, wars um, US yeah. has fought. Um, <laughs> looking at other foreign policies, what's really interesting to me, obviously I'm not unbiased, but it's Turkish foreign policy. Because <laughs> um, there's a significant change in Turkish foreign policy um, around 2009 and 2000, 2011. So this change happened with Ahmed Dautoglu, who served as foreign minister and prime minister. Um, so up mm-hmm. until 2000, 2009, um, Turkey had a zero problems with neighbours policy, which sounds really funny at the moment, I know. Um, <laughs> it's the complete opposite. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but around 2009, well, between 2009 and 2011, Turkey switched from um, so this policy, this zero problems with neighbours policy, to a more of a central key country on the Syrian policy. So Dovatolos gave a speech at the time which kinda he where he said, um, you know, Turkey's not a bridge but a key country. So he was referring to how, you know, Turkey's always spoken about as a bridge between East and West and this what Dovatola did at the time and what he his foreign policy was that there was a desire to make Turkey more than just a bridge, right? There was there was a So he was trying to sorry, so he was trying to um assert Turkey's rightful role in international relations. Yes, basically, yeah. Um, and he has this definition, which is basically he says, "We want Turkey to be a country whose voice is heard and listened to in the world and in global matters. A country mm. that you know want Turkey to be a country that foresees events and prepares and comes up with alternative solutions to these events and matters." Mm-hmm. So he had a more of a civilization-centered political commitment than a nation-state understanding which is quite often why it's called neo-Ottomist policy, yeah. right? Um, yeah. And it does, um, it represents a break from the traditional Kemalist um, foreign policy, which is more focused on becoming part of Europe, uh, literally part of the European Union and yeah. part of the Western civilization. 
So do you agree with the neo-Ottomanist labelling? <laughs> um, I don't, actually. And I don't have great reasons for not agreeing because it actually kind of makes it sound worse. But <laughs> I do think of the foreign policy and the understanding in general as more than just Ottomanist. Um, right. Because you see during this period, especially after 2010, Turkey um, is not active in Africa. Sub-Saharan Africa specifically. Um, and Somalia. Yeah, they have really good relations with Somalia. Um, mm. They sort of work on their relations with Malaysia and Indonesia and further away countries. Mm-hmm. Um, they've always had a good relation with Azerbaijan, especially um, in the Republican era. Um, so th- that's a break from the Ottoman policy because the Ottomans were never really present in Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, they weren't that active in Central Asia. But mm-hmm. you, so you see the sort of nationalist, ethno-nationalist policies and the Islamist understanding of the Ottomans come together and sort of widen into right. different spheres. Um, yeah. And so in 2011 and with the Arab Spring, this sort of policies were seen as a possibility now, right? It wasn't just a desire, but it became an actual real possibility, um, mm-hmm. especially during, the, um, during those years the relations with the EU were getting worse. Um, the Eurozone crisis had just happened. Um, Turkey, Turkish economy at the time was not affected by this. So Turkey really started to question why it was still trying to join the EU and why it wasn't branching out to other regions around the countries. Um, and there was actually popular support for this too, and that the, the popular desire to join the EU had decreased significantly throughout these years. Less and less people were wanting Turkey to join the EU, and there were polls at the time that sort of the numbers kept decreasing. Um, so at the time, Dovatola saw this change in the Middle East as an opportunity for Turkey to become a de- decision maker rather than a country that follows the decisions of others, right? Yeah. And this should be understood um, as part of a wider change in Turkey that aimed to recreate its identity and its political culture, um, which at that point was seen more of a necessity than a desire, right? So when you come to Libya, you see that one, Turkey... So Turkey actually was trying to have good relations with Gaddafi before, um, as it was trying to have good relations with other tyrants in the region, like Assad. Mm -hmm. Um, But... Like I said, the Arab Spring changed a lot for Turkey and its policies. So it became, it, it started to support the popular uprisings rather than um, the governments. So Libya does provide a good opportunity for Turkey to become more active, not just politically, but militarily too. Because as you mentioned, Turkey did provide support and does provide support to the GNA. And it even is using its you know new military technology, such as drones. Yeah in Libya. Um, Which is quite impressive because they're Turkish-made. Yeah. So I don't want to say it's a testing ground for Turkish foreign policy, but it's definitely a good example of the change in Turkish foreign policy because right. when you look at Turkish foreign policy, you know, especially before the AKP era, 1990s, it was a lot less... Um, I don't want to say interventionist because that's a negative word, but it kind of kept more hands itself. off. Yeah, more hands off definitely. It kept yeah. itself. It, it it was the main aim was joining the European Union. That was the main aim yeah. of Turkish foreign policy. 
And also, you're not going to war with any of the neighbors. Yeah. And <laughs> it's the struggle, but yeah. And I feel like, um, given its proximity with all these troubled nations mm-hmm. as well, uh, it can't just sit back and, yeah. you know, watch these conflicts. Yeah, like, yeah. it has to get involved. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing with Turkish foreign policy, too, especially um, last 10, 15 years. You know, there are desires and there are, there, are, there are wishes and there are aims and there are goals, but there's also the reality. Yeah, there's a reality that there are several conflicts going around Turkey. Yeah. There are several, you know, uh, neighbors who are involved in conflict, and yeah. it's very, very, very difficult for Turkey not to become involved in these conflicts because yeah. it is a matter of national security to an extent, and it is also mm-hmm. like it's 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 a combination of the desire and the reality. Um, it's yeah. not one or the other completely. Mm-hmm. Libya, and you Libya, can't divorce those two things. Exactly, you can't divorce them. And Libya is a good example of how. They sort of combine because Eastern Mediterranean is important for Turkey, you know, not yeah. just because it has um, it's, natural it's, resources. Not, not just, it, there's also Cyprus, which Turkey sees as part of itself. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So you know, there 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 are a lot of considerations to be made when um, looking at Turkish involvement in Libya. It, it's difficult to argue that Turkey is a power to, you know, take up a fight with France or the US, but. It mm-hmm. kind of is. <laughs> so again, like you said, like with, if if the American presidency does change, it will be interesting to see how that affects Turkish foreign policy in Libya and how that affects U.S. Turkey relations. Yeah, we're all kind of sitting on the edge and yeah. waiting for how U.S. foreign policy affects relations with loads of countries. To yeah, be honest, yeah, yeah. but I think Libya will be an interesting one because yeah, um, you know, if Biden becomes president at the moment, it looks like he will, but um, yeah. There are also other issues there, but you know, if Biden yeah. becomes president, you know, he definitely has more interventionist policies than Trump. Mm-hmm. You know, will that mean Biden wants to be more involved in Libya? Or yeah, because what... that could be that could be true because they might abandon their peripheral, minimal yeah. role in Libya and get more involved. Yeah, and the question is who... under the guise of humanitarian yeah, intervention. Yeah, exactly. But the question is, who will the US support? Uh, obviously, the GNA is sort of the a US UN project. Yeah, but you have France supporting Haftar. Yeah, but then you also have Russia supporting Haftar. So it's it will be interesting to see how this conflict unfolds with yeah. a possible new U.S. presidency. So just to summarise uh, the conversation that we've just had, I think we can both agree that NATO's mission was contradictory. They set out to protect the Libyans um, against a tyrant, but ended up leaving a power vacuum. Uh, which was exploited by militias and there was violence and lawlessness, which is still engulfed Libya mm. today. Um, I mean, sorry, it's questionable to... Um, it's very difficult to determine what would have been better, but um, yeah, to say the least... Yeah, exactly. So yeah, currently there are talks going on in Morocco uh, in preparation for further talks in Tunisia, and the plan is to outline a political roadmap for Libya and agree on some sort of power-sharing agreement and ceasefire. But we can only hope that warring parties commit to this peace plan and that there will be no renewal of violence. And I think the international community is at this stage where everyone is hopeful for some sort of uh, peace plan that can deliver peace and stability in the country. On that note... Um, thank you for listening to us and we hope that you tune in for the next episode of Seriosity. Salam.